Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Hello, my name is Tom Lucchese, and I'm a partner at the law firm of Baker and Hostetler. Baker and Hostetler has been involved with the City Club since the City Club's inception in 1912. In fact, our founding partner, Newton D. Baker, was a participant in the very first forum ever hosted by the City Club. Today, we are especially proud to partner with the City Club in connection with the 2021 High School Debate Championship. We partner with the City Club today in honor of our late partner, Patrick Jordan. Pat was a brilliant lawyer. He was a championship high school debater, uh, went to high school at St. Ignatius. Uh, he died in 1995 at the age of 37, leaving behind his wife, Sharon Sobel Jordan, and his 18-month-old daughter, Anne. Uh, we miss Pat. We miss Pat every day. Uh, he was a wonderful lawyer, as I said, a championship debater, and a fantastic human being. Um, Pat was a larger-than-life figure, and we wanted to keep Pat's memory alive uh, for our own sake and the sake of his family, and we've done so by sponsoring this debate. Um, Pat, as I said, was a brilliant lawyer. He was a championship debater himself, and he loved to argue. He loved to win. And for you youngsters um, in the audience, uh, you youngsters participating in debate, you don't realize this, but back in the day, there was no Google. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, there was no way to find out the answers to life's serious questions, like um, which baseball player had the most hits or which, um, you know, we, we argued about everything. Pat loved to argue, he loved to win. Um, and the defining character of Pat uh, was not only his argumentative style and, and his desire to win, uh, but his respect for his opponents. And I've told this story before, um, and I'll tell it every year uh, until we stop doing this, or until I die, whichever comes first. Um, I call it the story of Joe. Uh, when Pat was a, a lawyer, a young lawyer with our firm, he had to negotiate with a man named Joe who owned a restaurant. And he was negotiating to take over the restaurant's business. Um, the restaurant was located in a, in a building where I am right now, where the um, Key Tower is in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. And Key Tower was being built, and all the businesses that were on this site had to be uh, raised. The buildings were raised. The businesses were, had to move elsewhere. And Pat negotiated with a man named Joe for several months to buy out the remaining lease that Joe had for his active restaurant business. And it was emotional for Joe. It was emotional for Pat representing our client. Um, and things got heated. The parties went back and forth. We were, of course, trying to get a low value. The restaurant owner named Joe was trying to get a high value. And they fought bitterly. They, they, they argued. They called each other names even. It was, it was a, a, a long, protracted debate, if you will, over the value of the restaurant. And at the end, they reached an agreement. They shook hands, and they became lifelong friends. Um, and that tells you everything you need to know about Pat. Um, he was able to argue his points. 
He was able to win, if you will, by getting a good resolution. And he respected his opponent. And as I said, they became lifelong friends until the day Pat died. Um, I still see Joe on a regular basis. He runs a restaurant in the old arcade. Um, or not in the old arcade, but across the street. And he uh, is a wonderful man, and he thinks very highly of Pat to this day, many years later. And that is a trait, respecting your opponent, um, arguing on the merits, um, not necessarily name-calling, but arguing on the merits, and um, respecting your opponent, and living with the results of your, of your debate or your argument at the end of the day. And that's something that's sorely missing uh, in today's political cl- climate. And I would ask the adults uh, that are participating or that are watching this to take a lesson from the kids today, these high school kids uh, that are young adults themselves that are uh, setting a good example for how to debate, how to respect each other, how to follow the rules, and how to abide by the results, um, whether you win or whether you lose. So with that, uh, welcome. Um, Enjoy uh, the process. Uh, Good luck to both of our debaters today. And I will turn this over, turn the microphone over to Dan Malthrop from the City Club. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate the support and partnership of Baker Hostetler over these last 100 years. I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club and a proud member. And I'm pleased to join Tom in introducing the 2021 High School Debate Championship. This is a unique moment for us. As Tom said, for more than 30 years, we've hosted the High School Debate Championship. It's a competition of local debaters, and they work on this for months. Last year, this event was the last one we actually convened in person before we we moved to entirely digital programming. This year, we're presenting it online and over the airwaves, as it's really important for us to preserve this opportunity for these two incredible young people. We thank you for joining us today, whether it's via our live stream or our radio broadcast and to cheer on our students, to be inspired by their intellects, and perhaps be encouraged by their dedication and their resilience. Today's debate represents the final round of competition for the North Coast District of the National Speech and Debate Association. This event, along with the high school programming coordinated by the Youth Forum Council, is a big part of your City Club's continuing commitment to youth in our communities. With the support of the community, the City Club also makes it possible for more than 2,000 students to attend forums for free every year. The two young people debating this afternoon will engage in the style of what's known as Lincoln-Douglas debate. The purpose of Lincoln-Douglas debate is to examine morals and value-based questions posed by current public policy issues. Rather than focusing on the practical implications of these policies, Lincoln-Douglas debate asks the debaters to take a more philosophical look at the question. Both debaters will focus on a value which they believe should be prioritized and the criteria by which that value can be measured, in addition to providing evidence and analysis in support of their arguments. Both debaters will have equal time to present a constructive speech in support of their argument and a cross-examination to question their opponent, as well as opportunity for rebuttal. Now, if your school or student is interested in participating in speech and debate at the middle school or high school level, you should reach out to us. We can connect you with the teachers and coaches that can help you to make that happen. Our championship today will be evaluated by a panel of three judges, Berea Midpark Debate Coach Ryan Peoples, Ohio Speech and Debate Association Advisor Vicki Balzer, and Huntington Bank Senior Vice President and Managing Director and City Club Board Member Artis A. Arnold III. Our finalists are two of the finest high school debaters that Greater Cleveland has produced during the school year. 
Both students have qualified to compete at the National Speech and Debate Association's national tournament in, in June. Let me introduce them. They're Chagrin Falls junior Sophia Avery, coached by Corinne Midlick, and Hawkins senior Soren Polensic, coached by Robert Schertz. And now let me introduce the resolution for today's debate. It's a topic we actually touched on at another recent City Club forum. Resolved, the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. We flipped a coin a few moments ago, and Soren Polensic will begin with the affirmative side, and Sophia Avery will take the negative position. Debaters, welcome to you, and good luck. Hi, thank you. Um, just to start, I'd like to give a short thank you to Baker and Hostetler for uh, uh, sponsoring this debate, as well as the City Club for hosting. Um, apologize for any possible technical issues that might happen or have already happened, um, but assuming everyone's ready, I'm just going to go ahead and begin with the affirmative constructive, starting in one moment. Starting now. I affirm, resolved, the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. Because the resolution is a question of what policies the government owes the people, I value justice, defined as giving each their due. Because each familial actor has their certain duties and rights based on their place in the family, the value criterion is promoting familial rights, which has two pillars. First, child rights. Children, especially young children, are entitled to complete provision of basic necessities and basic socialization, such that they are prepared to enter the school system. Second, parental rights. Parents are entitled to have autonomy and independence from their child insofar as the basic necessities of the child are met. To be just, the government must preserve conditions that promote a just family structure for two reasons. First, the family is the building block of society. Because the family creates and develops the next generation, in order to maintain itself, the state must respect the structure of the family. Second, legal protection. Especially in a parent-child relationship, which is naturally dependent and unequal, any government that expects rights fulfillment must legally guarantee it to be successful. Contention one, child rights. Because children do not have fully developed autonomy, they are entitled to have their basic material and social needs met through childcare. Therefore, regardless of whether used or not, they must inherently be given the tools to be given their rights. Thus, you ought to affirm, regardless of any consequences, to uphold the inherency of rights. However, implementing universal childcare also enables physical benefits for children in three ways. Subpoint A, adoption. Adoption is one of the most common outcomes for children born into poorer families. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 2020, there are about 1.5 million adopted children in the U.S. An Adoption Center of America in 2019 furthers that 29% of children put up for adoptions will spend at least three years in foster care. Roughly 20,000 children annually never find a family through adoption. Being stuck in foster care has detrimental impacts. According to the Child Welfare League of America in 2020, 50% of children in foster care will never graduate from high school or obtain a GED. And furthermore, after aging out of the system, 25% of foster teens experience homelessness. Luckily, universal childcare can help to solve this. According to the American Adoptions Organization in 2020, to raise a child, a person must be prepared to pay for childcare. Roughly 70% of parents who place their children into the adoption system do so hoping adoptive parents are more prepared for this cost. Because universal childcare offers free resources like food and medical care to children and frees up time for parents to work, it will reduce the financial strain on families thus reducing the adoption rate and providing basic rights. Subpoint B, neglect. For those children born into poor families who are not placed into the foster care system, they still face the physical risk of poverty. Elizabeth Brico in 2019 finds that three quarters of child maltreatment cases are related to neglect, which is most often the result of poverty. However, childcare can help to reduce the rates of neglect by providing adequate resources and most importantly, consistent supervision. 
According to New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, the U.S. has 20,000 children in 2016, and 60% of these children died due to preventable injuries due to lack of supervision. Thus, in order to provide children with their basic right to bodily safety, we have to give them access to safe and well-equipped places through universal childcare. Subpoint C is education. Even for children not put up for adoption and well off enough that they do not face neglect, they are still susceptible to falling behind academically. According to the Center on Children and Families in 2018, 48% of poor or middle-income children are ready for school at age five, compared to 75% of well-off children. Due to their mother's propensity to be poorly educated, have high rates of depression or poor health. However, universal childcare can help by giving children exposure to broader vocabularies from their peers and access to materials like books and music. The National Institute of Health finds that children who received childcare before entering kindergarten had better vocab scores in the fifth grade than children who did not. And Rocosa furthers that on average, society sees a return of $7 for every $1 invested in early childhood education. And government-funded childcare is inherently the best tool for learning because according to the Center for American Progress in 2019, it works to align preschool programs with the K-12 educational continuum, such that children transition seamlessly between preschool and kindergarten. Because universal childcare prevents harmful adoption experiences, it promotes child rights and reduces the chances that children are neglected or receive poor education, you ought to affirm. Contention two, parental rights. After a parent has fulfilled their duties, no parent has the obligation to be tied to their children for all hours of the day and to sacrifice their autonomy. Thus, regardless of the practical impact of such a program, the state first and foremost has the obligation to universally provide the right to parental autonomy. Luckily, universal childcare does have positive practical impacts as well. Morrissey 17 of the Review of Economics of the Household finds that a 10% reduction in the price of childcare would lead to an 11% increase in maternal employment. When parents have the option for universal childcare, they have more autonomy in their professional lives and is thus can choose to pursue educational or employment opportunities. Thus, there are two impacts. First, childcare allows single mothers to access the workforce. According to Farrell 13 of the Center for American Progress, single mothers are nearly 40% more likely to maintain employment over two years than those who did not have help paying for childcare. Employment for single mothers is critical not only because they are most at risk for not being able to adequately provide for their children, but also because women have an inherent right to equality in the workplace. As the building block of a stable family is a job, providing time to do a job is essential. And second, children, child care permits children to pursue or parents to pursue higher education. Will in 20 of the Hackinger Report finds that parents who use child care had higher persistence rates from one fall semester to the next, 68% to 51%. In the long term, universal child care is the best way to cement parental rights. Meridian 2012 concludes that universalist programs be de become defined as citizenship, entitlements, or rights, and thus subsequently become difficult to underfund or cut back, attaching normative expectations to family rights and thus guaranteeing them. Thus, because universal childcare promotes a just family structure by protecting the rights of children and parents, by reducing financial hardships, neglect, and increasing education for children, and improving employment opportunities for parents, I affirm, and I'm ready for cross. If all of my judges and my opponent is ready for cross, then we can begin. All right, seems like everyone's set. All right, so firstly, how does the government measure the extent to which we've promoted familial structures? Sure, so I think the first way is by making sure that children have their basic adequate needs met. So I talk about this during work. I say that they need to have access to shelter. Yeah, to sure, food, but like specifically water. within like familial structures, how do we measure like the extent to which you've upheld a family structure? Well, I think I sort of pointed out there, I mean, our children, being given access to their most fundamental rights, do parents have the opportunity to pursue an equal and fair chance in the workplace? If the answer is yes, then we've achieved it. 
Sure. So those are those like two components of family rights. It's basically just saying kids have their basic needs and parents have autonomy. Right. All right. Perfect. So you talked to me a lot in your case about the benefits of early childhood education. So how do you link into quality through a universal program? Sure. So I think the first point would be that we don't necessarily have to have super high quality childcare at a young age, because the main way in which I link into this is by saying that they meet people from different backgrounds and thus get exposed to higher vocabulary and basic things like books. Okay. And music so like outside. social integration is the link to like why universal childcare is going to be better. Sure, but also things like books and music that are housed at daycares and preschools are really effective, even if maybe the curriculum isn't the best. Okay, so should a government implement a policy just because the curriculum, like if the curriculum isn't the best? I mean, I think that the government ought to implement a policy that best guarantees a universal right to education, and that's what this does. Okay, sure, but we're talking about like what kids are due, right? You're telling me kids should have all of their basic needs met and parents should have autonomy. So why does just giving people the bare bones like, well, it's better than nothing? Why should a government implement a policy like that? Well, I mean, I think that the preschool program will probably be similar to the public school education system. I'm okay. all for so let's talk about the, the public education system then. Do we see like widespread quality within those programs? I mean, I would say it's far better than an alternative nothing, and we should also improve these systems once they've already become universal rather than the other way around. Have we seen that in the public system? Like, I think the public school system has improved over time in terms of its results, sure. So there's not like large educational disparities in the current educational system? I mean, of course, you know- Like, can you outline specific terms. steps that we've taken to rectify some of those like disparities? Well, I mean, there's been an increase in educational funding over the years, like if you start at the beginning of US history, but. I think the point here that I'm making is it's far better to have something rather than nothing. I mean, we can get to that in a rebuttal. So you talked to me about adoption, right? So your link into this is just childcare is going to be cheaper? Um, yeah, because it's like affordable for everyone, it's universal. Okay, so how do we finance like a universal plan for childcare? Um, well, it would probably be done based off of like taxation of the government budget, so. Okay, that's a bad cross. Um, I'll run some prep time. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive at the City Club of Cleveland. You're listening to the City Club Friday Forum. It's our high school debate championship. You just heard Sophia Avery, junior at Chagrin Falls High School, cross-examining Soren Polensic, senior at Hawken. And the topic... The, the topic has to do with the right to universal child care, the resolve, the, uni un the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. With me to talk about what's happening and what you're hearing is Nick Castell. He's a reporter at WCPN Ideastream. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. I am struck by what a timely debate this actually is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even uh, today and over the past few weeks, as Congress has been uh, debating what should go into this $1.9 trillion stimulus package, uh, you know, we, we hear this debate about the, the universal, uh, or at least a child tax credit, uh, making the amount of money the government provides for families with children more generous. Uh, you're hearing it not just from the Democratic side either right now, although, you know, Democrats are the ones uh, pushing and supporting this bill, but you've also heard it from uh, folks like Republicans. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, who also proposed a, a child, a, you know, a government support for families with kids. So, I mean, this is uh, right in the middle of the news right now. The um, the argument that Soren was making, can you sort of break down a little bit? I, I outlined at the very beginning of the of the program how these debates, this Lincoln-Douglas style of debate work. Uh, he talks about values and criterion and these very sort of technical debate language. Unpack that for us a little bit. 
Yeah, so what what really is supposed to be at the heart of your argument in this event is is, you know, pointing to some kind of universal value like justice or or truth, you know, really lodging your argument in this sort of foundational idea of something that we all value as a society. So you're not necessarily making a political argument saying, hey, we should do this because it's politically popular and we will win the next election if we do. You're really trying to root your argument in in an idea of universal values uh, that gives it maybe what you might see as like some philosophical bedrock to the policy proposal that you're putting forward. Sort of Jeffersonian inalienable rights. Right, exactly. Um, and in to, to summarize, it seemed as though, um, I mean, he was basically anchoring his argument in justice and in the, this idea that this is a more just future or a more just policy. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you hear in the cross-examination uh, these questions of, well, how do you define that? Are you sure that this is really supporting the argument that you're making? You know, you're not necessarily just going to go out there and say, oh, you're wrong. I disagree with you. You've got to say, but is your argument really holding true to the values that you say you espouse? You know, I, I'm glad you brought up the cross-examination, too, because I was struck that while— um, that it's really kind of a model of civility, although it's not sort of uh, sort of the kind of civility that would just that allows for the other person to just keep talking. I mean, Sophia interrupted Soren a number of times, but there is this kind of like I'm interrupting you, but it's really about trying to understand your argument better. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, honestly, it sounds like a good interviewing technique, too. You're not just letting the, the person you're interviewing vamp or, or you know, continue talking, but you're jumping in to say, but what do you mean by that? How do you define that? Right. You're really and, asking them to support their argument. And I'm going to jump in right now so we can get back to the debate itself. So if you, now the next thing you'll hear is Sophia Avery offering her argument in the negative. All right. So before I jump into the negative constructive, just a few quick thank yous. Firstly, a big thank you to the City Club of Cleveland and Baker and Hostetler for this event. I have watched the City Club debates every year since a freshman, and it's so cool to actually be here. My coaches, Ken Casey and Curtin and Lick, and my debate team for um, all of their support getting me here. So then with the thank yous out of the way, the order for this speech is just going to be firstly reading and presenting my negative case and then responding to Soren's case. So if all of my judges are ready and everyone is set, then I'll begin now. I negate the resolve the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. The value of utmost importance is justice defined as each receiving their due. Thus, the necessary criterion is mitigating structural violence. Structural violence occurs when certain groups are disadvantaged by political, legal, economic, or cultural barriers. We should look to helping those least advantaged before looking to help others. In framing this round, I observe that this debate is not comparing a world with universal childcare to the status quo. As a country, we have the capabilities to implement many different types of childcare reforms to the current system. The debate today presides over whether a universal approach specifically is the right one. My sole argument is that a universal approach to childcare reform deepens barriers that disadvantaged children face. There's three core reasons for this. The first is socioeconomic segregation. Universal child care perpetuates economic inequality through the early segregation of young children based on class. Extensive segregation by social class was found in many different UCC programs, Norway, New York, and Germany, to name a few. Even when strict standards and regulations were applied in these experiments, no program achieved diversity. 
Socioeconomic segregation concentrates poor children in lower quality schools. Universality does not mean that schools are treated uniformly. The U.S. Department of Education found that over 40% of low-income public schools didn't get a fair share of state and local funding. There's no reason that a UCC would see a divergence from this trend. In fact, a study from the University of Stavanger provides an empirical basis that even in universal childcare programs with strict regulations, there were large disparities in quality of education. This leads not only to poor quality education, but poor kids are disproportionately impacted due to segregation. Ultimately, poor quality early childhood programs will accomplish the opposite of their goals and exacerbate risk to disadvantaged children. The Early Childhood Action Collective describes how low quality childcare harms cognitive development, exposes kids to serious emotional and physical hazards, including reports of abuse and safety violations, and fails to solve achievement gaps that trap disadvantaged kids in poverty. The second reason is that universal standards ignore the unique needs of disadvantaged families. There are two reasons for this. First, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that one-fifth of employed Americans work non-standard non hours and low-income and racial minorities are even more likely to be included in that group compared to others. Because the Washington Center for Equitable Growth points to non-standard work hours as a major factor preventing families from enrolling their children in pre-K, a universal program would fail to help the disadvantaged groups that struggle with childcare the most. Second, universal one-size-fits-all curricula standards and pre-K programs will disregard the needs of disadvantaged kids. The Hetchinger Report describes that universally implemented standards such as Common Core increased achievement gaps as low-income special needs and students of color disproportionately failed under these standards. Universal quality standards exclude any students with unique learning needs or different cultural backgrounds. Creating systems that just allow upper and middle-class white students to succeed perpetuates inequality. Moreover, Philip Elliott of the Associated Press discusses that the United States has a precedent of ignoring schools that fail to meet regulations and standards with no consequences or interventions, allowing at-risk students to slip through the cracks. Lastly, a universal child care program would take away resources and political capital necessary for child care reforms that would be more effective at addressing the problems we face. Policy analyst, Samuel, policy analyst Samuel Hammond describes that child allowances, direct transfers of money to parents in need, is one of the most effective ways at cutting child poverty and improving developmental outcomes as evidenced by over 20 countries. Allowances to parents are more effective than a universal approach as parents often know what's better for their children than the government does and can harness their localized knowledge of their communities to meet specific needs. Thus, I strongly negate. Now moving on to Soren's case. So we agree on the value of justice, but we defer on the value criterion. He says that we should value promoting familial rights. Firstly, sure, this is important, but there's a lot of other priorities we need to solve first in order to like ensure that all children have their baseline needs. There's structural barriers that prevent like students of color or low-income students from actually achieving like these baseline needs that my opponent says are so important. So first, you're gonna prefer my framework because that gives you an actual way that we can achieve like familial structures here. So my framework it's a prerequisite before we can do anything else talking about parental autonomy or child rights. So on my opponent's first contention, my opponent talks to you about children's rights. And on his first point, he talks about adoption here. So this whole argument is predicated on the idea that childcare is going to be really expensive. And if we make it more accessible, then more people are going to be able to access it. Two points to this. Firstly, look to Perez 19, where I talk about a case which specifically tells you that some of the major barriers preventing low-income families from accessing childcare are non-standard work hours. So you're still not solving for one-fifth of the population that one-fifth of employed Americans that aren't going to be able to access these programs. But then in addition, HAVS 14 tells you that UCC is not cost beneficial and it likely wouldn't be able to pay for itself, meaning that the cost wouldn't actually be better for families. 
House 15 told you that no middle-income or upper-class children had any substantial gains under UCC programs, and therefore neither of these groups generated benefits that offset the cost. The way we would be paying for this program is essentially through human capital. But if you don't see any returns on human capital, you're not going to see this program be able to pay for itself. Therefore, my opponent loses his link into accessibility. The most cost-effective solution is to pour resources into groups that would actually see benefits that offset the cost, such as low-income children. But moving on to my opponent's subpoint B, he talks about neglect. So the first response here comes from Leonard21 that tells you that the childcare field under COVID-19 has led to COVID-19 has caused structural collapse within the childcare field and that ramp up would be extremely difficult. So if we try and increase the number of children in classrooms under a universal program by what millions, then we'd see overcrowding of classrooms. Overcrowding disproportionately harms low-income and minority students that are more likely to slip through the cracks when they don't have supervision. So we see that this turns against my opponent because overcrowded classrooms increase your ability to like neglect children. But second, Sanders and Thompson specifically tell you that universal child care programs have a unique propensity to increase cases of abuse because of that overcrowding problem. We specifically see that child care is not the way to do this, or at least a universal approach isn't the way we solve this issue. On my opponent's subpoint C, he talks about education readiness. The first point here, he talks about social integration and cross. Remember, socioeconomic segregation takes out all of those warrants. But secondly, Cacasio 15, a meta-analysis looking at 34 different studies of universal child care spanning across 10 different different countries found that there were all of the benefits of like educational benefits of early childhood education programs and universal approaches were uh, completely eliminated before in, in kindergarten. And this was a meta-analysis, so there's no education readiness. On the second contention, look to Vandal 01 that tells you all of his impacts about parents' turn because parents don't want to send their children to low-quality childcare, but then low-income women don't actually um, support this program, and two-thirds of women would rather work part-time than work full-time. So if you want to respect parental autonomy, then you simply won't use this program. For all of these reasons, I strongly negate. So if my opponent and all the judges are ready for process, then I'll just go ahead and start now. So my first question is, do you think parents, and especially mothers, have the inherent right to work if they wish? I would say if they wish, right? But we shouldn't be forcing people to like go into the workforce if they have no propensity for that. So like under a universal childcare program, like two thirds of mothers would rather work part-time or stay at home with their children. Like we have specific studies showing that. But if you take away all other options and say you can either join this program or you have no childcare, you're forcing people into that like option. Well, isn't a universal program a choice? Can't they just choose to use universal or not? But in your world, there's- I would say if your options are limited between like poverty or working full time, then you don't really have a choice there. We see through okay. like childcare allowances or things like that. We actually provide parents with the full autonomy to make decisions in regards to what they want to do with their childcare. Parents are better at parenting than the government is. Sure. So I want to talk really quickly about this observation that you read. So do you have any counter policy that would be better than a universal childcare? So I give you my third reason is specifically talking about um, like child allowances and how that's specifically better than a universal, pro a universal program and how if we were to have a universal child care program, that would take away political capital and resources necessary sure. to implement a plan like this. Sure. So like, do you have any evidence to suggest that this would actually get passed in a negative world? Yeah, so again, this is like an LD debate. We're just talking about moral obligations. You're telling me why we're morally obligated to implement your program. I'm telling you this program is more effective. Therefore, the moral obligation lies in not um, negating the resolution, not implementing a universal approach in order to preserve resources and political capital for this. 
Well, couldn't you just simply say that if you don't have any burden to prove that your negative world would actually happen, couldn't you just say that you'd pass a policy that would give $12 billion to every single person in the world and you don't need to prove that it would actually happen? I feel like we're going in circles and this really isn't relevant, right? Because I never asked for like a five-step plan on like how we're going to implement universal childcare, right? I'm just showing you that the moral obligation to implement the most effective policy that will best help our kids and especially best help the most disadvantaged kids exists in my world and not yours. Okay, are people segregated in the status quo? Like when it comes to Yeah, sure. I tell you that universal childcare like drastically increases that in magnitude because we're concentrating children in these bad schools. So why does universal child care make that worse? Yeah, so universal child care uniquely concentrates children in these areas. Like if we had a child care allowance, right, parents could choose like child care providers. But when we concentrate kids in low income schools or we concentrate disadvantaged kids in schools that are going to receive disproportionate amounts of funding, the impacts of that are compounded onto them. And now not only do you have bad access to child care, but you sure. are like your social circumstances are defining what kind of quality of education you actually sure. get. But doesn't universal universal child care just involves building daycare centers? So couldn't parents still choose which daycare centers they want to send their kids to? Yeah, so again, like we're not super talking about implementation here, but I show you in like three different studies, like every single time this happened. So I give you like a US specific example of the US, Norway and Germany, we all saw segregation. So it's likely not going to be solved, it's going to be worsened by UCC. Okay, uh, thank you. I'm just going to go ahead and start prep time now. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop, and we're listening to our high school debate championship. That was Soren Polensic of Hawkins School cross-examining Sophia Avery of Chagrin Falls High School. As I said, I'm Dan Malthrop here with Nick Castell, a reporter at IdeaStream and our, our sort of senior high school debate uh, correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, um, Nick, help us understand exactly kind of where we are in the debate right now. Sure. So we've just heard uh, the uh, the negative argument followed by the cross examination. So uh, you know what Sophia Avery had been trying to do was present a, a you know the basically point out the weaknesses in Soren Polensic's uh, argument to say hey this doesn't line up. Uh, specifically trying to zero in on you know where might his argument not actually support uh, what we talked about before that value criterion that idea of justice for families and the family structure. So you can see she's trying to say, hey, his argument does not hold true to the foundation he's trying to build it on. And then he comes through with the uh, the cross-examination here where he's trying to basically pick away at her rebuttal and find weaknesses in her counter-argument. Um, and that's where you start to hear them debating, well, are we really talking about uh, whether this is a policy that could, say, pass Congress, or are we really talking about universal values here, which is sort of the heart of Lincoln-Douglas debate? It's interesting that the debate has gone to, uh, that Sophia's argument is sort of this libertarian argument saying, you know, we should leave it up to the people to decide how they spend these resources. We should sort of give them the resources and, and leave it up to them and and she's sort of taken a stand there as opposed to kind of stepping back further to kind of whether or not universal child care is, um, you know, caring for children generally is something we want to provide. Well, I think you heard her uh, say that a little bit at the beginning of her argument, but then you're right. She did seem to embrace this idea of, well, maybe a voucher would be better than parents could choose, you know, where they want to uh, to use it. Same debates you hear in, in education as, as folks debate school vouchers versus, you know, district-based public schools. I mean, we hear these debates in the real world, too. I am really struck by the fact that this is basically a philosophical follow-up to the forum we had last Friday about the child care crisis facing Ohio right now. 
Uh, you, you may need to fill me in on that one. I, I, I'll confess I wasn't following it. Well, but but you're right that this is, you know, these are often topics that are, are, are right in the news. They are, are very much uh, linked to what we're all debating in, in the real world as well. I mean, so these are not just, uh, we might call them philosophical arguments because they're based in these ideas of values, uh, but they're also very topical. We uh, and we'll have to. I'll have to fill you in later. I think uh, Soren is ready to uh, to reengage. Soren, put the next voice you'll hear is Soren Polensic of Hawken. Hi. So, a uh, quick off time roadmap. I will just be responding to my opponent's case, and then I will move on to defending my own case. Uh, so, assuming everyone's ready, I will begin now. So, we agree that the value in today's round is justice. However, when it comes to the value criterion, I disagree with my opponents of mitigating structural oppression. First off, I'd say that her idea here is vague. She basically tells us that we ought to be helping those who are least well off. But what does it actually mean to help someone? I'd say it means giving them rights, and we do this by providing universal rights to everyone. Insofar as those people who are disadvantaged in society right now are those people without rights, by providing universal rights, we help the worst off inherently. So you should prefer my framework. Then let's talk about this observation that she runs. First off, recognize that she doesn't actually give you a reason in which how we can compare these two worlds. Debate is all about comparing worlds. So how can we compare a world with UCC to a world in which we don't know exists? We should compare the status quo to a world with UCC. And secondly, the OSDA themselves lists in their rule book that a neg world has to argue for a probable policy. So if my opponent can argue that if we don't affirm, if we wait and we don't pass the UCC, we will be able to pass this direct funding policy, then we can go ahead and negate. But she doesn't give you any of this art evidence. She just suggests that possibly it could happen, and that's not sufficient to negate. Let's move on to convention one about subpoint A. So she talks about segregation. First off, according to Cohen in 2013, the status quo is even worse because right now, rich people decide to send their people to private centers and other people don't get to send them to any daycare centers at all. And that leads to far more segregation and far more problems. But then secondly, according to Johnson in 2019, we actually result in less segregation because we allow people to go to the specific daycare center that they like. This just involves building a lot of daycare centers so poor people can choose to go to wherever they like, and empirically, it led to far less. And then also, the last response is the notion that it's far more important to provide that people to make sure that people have their basic rights met. Remember that even basic care is enough to stop neglect. All we need is these people to be supervised. But then under subpoint D about disadvantage, disadvantaged people. Crown in 2019 says the reason as to why the majority of people actually have weird hours is because of childcare itself. The reason why all of these people have to work weird hours is because it's the only way they can take care of their children and work a job. But we solve for this problem inside of an app world where everyone gets universal childcare. And secondly, Chef in 2020 found that empirically when this program was introduced, they simply had night hours. And so it was most effective for the disadvantaged children who got to use these programs. Under subpoint C, first off, she has no evidence to suggest that this could be passed. And secondly, recognize that a UCC generates $7 for every $1 we spend. I read to you that inside of my affirmative case, according to Cohen in 2019, and that's really important because it means we could pay for this program on top of a UCC anyway. And third, it's important to have universal programs because people fall through the cracks. Let's move to the other side of the case. First off, in response to the framework, I think I've clearly shown you that it is not a prerequisite. The only way in which we can help the least advantaged is by giving them rights. In Convention 1, please extend the point that we have to give people inherent rights. Inherently, people are due rights, and if we don't give those rights legally, they will fall through the cracks and they will not be provided. This is why universal programs are necessary. But then on the Convention 1, she sort of tries to argue about non-standard work hours. I think I've already explained to you why non-standard work hours are a non-issue and are actually solved in an affirmative world. But then she says it's not cost beneficial. But Pool in 2019 says we generate $700 billion, and remember how I tell you we get $7 in for every $1 that we, or $7 out for every $1 we put in. 
Then she says COVID-19 and she talks about abuse and overcrowding. First off, COVID is short-term. Second, Basak in 2014 found actually the opposite happens. There's less overcrowding in our world because we actually have to, the government has to construct more child care centers in my world rather than the other world where there's just a small number of private care centers. But then secondly, recognize that we're going to provide fundamental rights to people. So even if the, even if the child care centers aren't as great as they could be, all they need is supervision. This reduces neglect by 75%. Then you can cross apply the notion that we will have independently great standards when it comes to education and that all we need is a basic level of care. She also tries to say that we're going to eliminate all of the benefits and that only two thirds of parents are actually working. However, you want to extend the notion of contention too that according to Brady in 2012, it's far higher to cut a program when it's universal. And then if women can work, it will solve back for all of the other issues when it comes to not being able to pay for their child care. That's I affirm. That's Soren Polensik. He is a senior at Hawkins School debating uh, here at the uh, City Club. It's the City Club Friday Forum with a uh, live high school debate. Uh, they are debating the the resolution resolved. The United States ought to guarantee universal child care. I'm Dan Malthrop with Nick Castell, IdeaStream reporter. Um, Nick, right now we're sort of at the second half of the debate. And um, I was really struck by this one thing that happens, particularly during the cross-exam, that this debate happens without a moderator. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is uh, uh, perhaps unusual for the general audience who are used to seeing a, a moderator, especially last year, trying to uh, get in between two uh, presidential candidates and get them to stop talking over each other. Uh, but here we have, uh, you know, the students, the debaters themselves, not just, um, you know, managing the the actual interaction in that cross-examination, but managing their own time, too, trying to stay within the rules. Uh, you know, it really is sort of a mark of civility and um you know, is, is maybe something that, that's kind of inspirational in a way. And we should point out, too, that the um, the debaters, in addition to communicating directly with our audience, they are also communicating directly to three judges who they're trying to convince. Yeah, exactly right. And so they're they're talking to those judges, letting them know. Uh, for instance, we heard earlier, you know, Soren Polensik saying, uh, I'm going to give you a roadmap for my argument here, just to kind of give the judges a sense of where he's going to go so that they can follow him. The thing about trying to to win a Lincoln-Douglas debate is you're not necessarily trying to convince the judges that you're right or get them to agree with you. You're trying to convince them that you have made the best argument, that your case has been well stated uh, without holes or flaws. We're going to go back now to the debate. Sophia Avery of Chagrin Falls High School is arguing in the negative. So with that, the order of this um, last negative speech is going to be firstly going over the framework of today's round, looking firstly at the negative case, moving on to Soren's case, and then giving some key voting issues as to why the negative won today's round. If my judges and everyone else is all set, then I'll begin now. So firstly, let's look at the framework or how we're going to evaluate today's round. Remember, on the value criterion of promoting familial rights, I give you the response that how do we actually do this across the board? Like if you want to ensure that every single child has baseline rights, you first need to solve for structural barriers that prevent certain groups of children from actually getting these rights. And my opponent doesn't respond to this point. He just says that my value criterion is vague and I don't tell you what we're actually helping. So I tell you specifically, the do's in both of our worlds are the same. We wanna give kids their rights. But remember, we can't just give kids their rights across the board. There's always going to be inequalities. When we're talking about a policy debate, we can't help everyone the exact same amount. I tell you that when these inequalities occur, we have to look to helping those who are most disadvantaged in society. So my opponent doesn't respond 
respond to that point, prefer mitigating structural violence as how we weigh today's round. But first, let's look at the negative side of the flow. So on my first contention, firstly, I give you an observation saying that I don't have to be defending the status quo, right? We have many different options for how we could change our current system of childcare. My opponent needs to prove to you why a universal system inherently is the answer to that, and he doesn't really respond. He basically just says the OSDA rule says that this has to be like a probable policy. I would say he hasn't given me anything to prove why a childcare allowance isn't a probable policy, and we've seen a lot of public discourse on this, so I would say yes, it's absolutely a probable policy actually interact with my argument instead of getting into the rules of what's fair and what's not. So on the subpoint A, talking about socioeconomic segregation, my opponent essentially just says the status quo is going to be worse, but remember, I don't have to defend the status quo. Yes, on both sides of this debate, we can agree that our current childcare right now is flawed. I tell you that a universal approach is not the answer to that. We need to look to what is actually going to help these disadvantaged groups instead of just perpetuating these structural barriers. My opponent says that there's going to be less segregation because we can choose J-care, but remember I give you three examples, large-scale examples from multiple countries where we didn't see that happen. So if universal childcare is so great at stopping segregation, why have we never seen it work ever? In my world, I clearly show you how we could help solve this through childcare allowances, and he doesn't respond to this point. But on the subpoint B, talking about why universal standards are so bad for children, I give you two points here. Firstly, I tell you that non-standard work hours specifically remove a lot of these groups from accessing childcare, and he basically just tells you that childcare causes non-standard hours. I would say that this just logically doesn't make sense, right? If I'm a low-income worker and I have to work night shifts or things like that, my childcare like preferences aren't going to like my employer isn't going to work around my childcare employer like my childcare preferences, especially if I'm a low-income worker and things like that. So logically, this just doesn't flow. But he says essentially we can solve for this by like creating night hours and universal childcare programs. Programs, I would say the extent to which we could do this is extremely limited. And remember, he doesn't respond to the point that there's disproportionate amounts of funding in different programs. I tell you that the most disadvantaged groups get the least amount of funding, and that is a huge point in today's round. So the low-income families that would need these programs to actually adapt to their schedules would have the least amount of funding, and then the least ability and flexibility to actually adapt to their schedules. So we're doing the worst. But then he cold drops in today's round, my second point, telling you that universal curricula standards are really really bad for disadvantaged kids because it allows them to fall through the cracks and perpetuate achievement gaps. He doesn't respond to this point at all, only responds to my first point, and that is huge because every time my opponent stands up in his next speech and tells you about how childcare is every child's right and a universal system is a must because we need to give every single child universally all of these dues, remember he doesn't respond to this point that these universal standards disproportionately exclude disadvantaged and minority groups. But then on the subpoint C, talking about childcare allowances, my opponent really doesn't interact with this argument at all. He just tells you that for every $1 we put in to early childhood education, we get $7 out. Firstly, recognize that this is not talking about universal childcare. This is talking about early childhood education. In both worlds, we can agree. Universal, in both worlds, we can agree specifically that early childhood education is great. I tell you that a universal approach to ensuring that is not going to see these benefits. And then he doesn't actually interact with this argument telling you why allowances are better. So you can vote for me just based off of that. Remember, I proved that we're helping the most disadvantaged by allowing them to meet their specific needs because they know what's best for their children, and my opponent doesn't respond to this point. But on the affirmative side of the flow, so on my opponent's first contention, firstly, I read you per S12 that tells you that a lot of um, disparities in um, specifically 
when we're looking at like parental hours and non-standard hours, my opponent can't solve for one-fifth of employers with non-standard hours on this point. So one-fifth of people aren't going to be helped by this program. But then has 15 specifically tells you that because no upper-class or middle-income kids couldn't actually like see any benefits from this program, we saw no returns on political capital, and thus this wasn't a cost-effective program. My opponent just reads you that we saw like $700 billion in surplus. But remember, this is not specifically talking about early childhood education or like a universal approach to this program. So this is not going to be cost effective. He loses his Lincoln to a plausibility. So on neglect, he basically tells you that we increase childcare, but remember his evidence is from 2016. And I tell you specifically that COVID-19 has ruined our childcare infrastructure. So the point on neglect and overcrowding stands. On education, my opponent makes a huge drop. Remember, I read you Costco 15, a meta-analysis looking at 34 different universal studies across 10 different countries that found that there was no effect on childhood education, and he basically drops his second contention, telling you that there's no actual impact. And remember, this whole argument turns because Vandal 01 tells you that mothers are less likely to go to work when there's low-quality childcare, so low-quality childcare excludes mothers from the workforce. So let's look at framing today's round for key voting issues. My opponent will give you a beautiful narrative in their next speech about why early childhood education is a crucial tool for young children on, on this front, but we disagree. On this front, we can agree. Early childhood education is great, but remember a universal approach to delivering this is flawed. Remember in a meta-analysis of 34 different studies, we saw that there was no actual impact of universal childcare. And remember that 40% of low-income schools don't get disproportionate funding. Spreading our resources so thin over a wide area ensures that the kids who need it most will receive help the least. So for all of these reasons, we owe it to our children to negate. That's Sophia Avery. She is a junior at Chagrin Falls High School. You're with the City Club Friday Forum. It's our annual high school debate championship. I'm Dan Malthrop here with Nick Castell of IdeaStream. Nick, um, we're closing in on the closing arguments. Yeah, that's right. So we've we've heard now, uh, uh, you know, the the negative argument here, and now we will enter the uh, the final argument here of the affirmative, where uh, Soren Polensic will get his last chance, sort of, to to get up and make his case. One advantage of of being the affirmative is that you the affirmative rather is that you get to talk first and last, I believe. Um, and so there's there's some advantage to that is you will be the last voice the judges hear. That is that would seem to be a bit of an advantage, um, Nick. I have no idea how the judges really will determine who the winner is. I mean, both of these young people are incredibly articulate and um, and have presented very compelling arguments. What are the judges looking for? Well, as I understand it, I think the judges are often looking for uh, how well argued were these cases. Did the affirmative really, you know, root uh, their argument in uh, this universal idea of justice? And uh, you know, did the negative uh, effectively point out flaws in the affirmative's argument, showing that in fact, you know, it's it's not built on a solid foundation? So I think, you know, at the end of the day, what the judges look for is uh, was this well put? Was this well argued? Is it, you know, uh, into intellectually consistent? Does it flow from one point to the next? You know, is there sound logic uh, laying underneath all of it? It's a, um, it, it is a difficult to, um, to judge. And I, throughout the whole thing, there's these, these constructs, this, this effort that is made to organize the argument. I remember at, at some point, Sophia referenced subpoint C. And I was like, what, what were A and B? 
<laughs> right. And, you know, if you ever watch a debater as they're as they're listening to a debate, they'll do something called flowing an argument where they'll be, you know, filling out a legal pad with notes, you know, in real time, trying to basically diagram and chart uh, someone's argument so that they can understand what is the structure of the point being made. And, and if they're arguing the negative, how can they point out holes? Well, we're getting ready now for Soren Palencic's closing argument. Here you go. I will be going, uh, giving sort of a framing argument about the round, um, and then I'll give some key reasons why I'm winning, and this should respond to my opponent. Um, so assuming everyone's ready, I will begin now. So talking about the framework in today's round, my opponent continually asks me and claims that I dropped the notion that the only way we can ensure that people get help is by helping lease well off. But I think I do give a response to this in the last speech. I tell you that the only way we can actually help people and define what the word help even means is by talking about rights. Because people who are disadvantaged in society inherently don't have rights, universal programs that provide rights to everyone are inherently good. This response goes unresponded to throughout today's round. My opponent never tells you why we shouldn't inherently give people their rights. But let's move on to the KBIs. So the first KBI is the notion that inside of my opponent's world, they will not have the programs that they claim they do. This is for a couple of reasons. First off, remember the OSDA rules specifically tell you that the negative has to advocate for a policy that is probable. The reason for this is kind of simple. Otherwise, the negative would just say, why don't we pass a policy that gives $12 billion to every single person in America? Obviously, we have to believe that if we don't get UCC, we're going to get something better. And my opponent really doesn't provide you any of that. Miller in 2019 tells you we're not going to be expanding systems like tax credits at all, and she doesn't give you any evidence to suggest we actually would do that. But then secondly, even if you're going to buy that she does get hers in her world, I can give her program as well as mine. Because remember, I tell you that we get $7 back for every $1 that we put into the system. And I also give you a card that says we on net make $700 billion when we provide universal child care. That wasn't talking about education. That was universal child care itself. And so you should believe that we're going to be able to implement both policies in either world. But then even if you're not going to believe any of that, recognize that I give you concrete reasons why universal programs are inherently better. And this is for a few reasons. First off, I read you the Cohen 19 response, which was the third response to my opponent's last subpoint, which specifically tells you that universal programs are better because it ensures people don't fall through the cracks. In my opponent's world, certain people aren't going to receive these targeted programs, certain people aren't going to be helped, and that's going to be far worse than everything else. My opponent admits that we have to have at least basic standards. The only way to make sure we have basic standards for everyone is to have a program that goes for everyone. But secondly, is that my opponent has cleanly dropped the response from Brady in 2012, which says that it's way harder to cut programs that are universal. Look, we know that there are always going to be people inside of Congress who are going to want to roll back programs that help the poor. But universal programs are really hard to cut because we view them as universal rights for everyone. So if you want to have a program that is going to have an ability to be helped in the future, you ought to, you ought to affirm. And then the last KVI is going to be this notion of simply helping the least advantaged. All of my opponent's arguments center around this idea that my world is bad because it leads to segregation, that leads to all these problems. But she admits that my world is better than the status quo, because even if it isn't perfect, it gives people a baseline. And secondly, her world would suffer from all of these exact same problems. She doesn't tell you why, even if people were able to go to whatever child care center they want, there wouldn't be segregation. I give you Cohen 2013, which says we help the least well off empirically. Even if they don't get the most help, the baseline is the fundamental need that they have. Supervision reduces the amount of death by 75%, and it ensures that less people have to go into the adoption system. Thus, if you want to ensure women can work, if you want to ensure there's baseline quality, and you want to ensure that all people's rights are inherently upheld, you affirm. Soren Palencic is a senior at Hawkins School, and he's been debating Sophia Avery. Okay, so congratulations to both of you. What an extraordinary debate. I was really struck by the um, 
the extensive research that both of you did. Sophia, how much time do you spend in prepping for uh, for a resolution like this in just in research? <laughs> oh, man. This is going to expose me for not having a social life, but um, a substantial amount of time, definitely, especially because this was the state's topic. Like other topics, you know, you spend a good amount of time, but specifically because this is the one for our state tournament, um, my whole team just spent like the whole last week just nonstop prepping this topic. Soren? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that there's, there's no way I would be um, debating here or I would have had any success as a debater without um, the really great team that I had around me. Um, the amount of time that everyone spends dedicated to not just helping themselves, but helping other people and giving arguments that will help each other is, is um, it's one of the best parts of the debate. And without it, there, there's no way I'd be successful. Well, on behalf of the City Club of Cleveland and our partners at Baker Hostetler, I'm pleased to announce that the winner of the 2021 High School Debate Championship is Soren Polensic of Hawkins School. Congratulations, Soren. How are you feeling? Thanks. I, I feel amazing. Um, I definitely watched uh, the City Club debate like all my years as a high school debater, and I'm just I'm just thrilled that I got the opportunity to actually win it. So um, thanks. All right. Well, congratulations. We're excited to get that trophy out to you and another one to your school as well. Congratulations to you. Soren Polensic, winner of the 2021 High School Debate Championship. Congratulations. The 2021 High School Debate Championship for the North Coast District of the National Speech and Debate Association has come to a close. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.